This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. Thank you for being with us. This show is, in my view, upfront, up close, and mindful. Okay, so with a name like Einstein, you know our first guest was destined to explore the many medical matters related to the brain. Dr. Jillian Einstein has done just that and so much more. Today, she is a professor of psychology at U of T, the founder of the Einstein Lab, adjunct scientist at both Women's College and Rotman Research Institutes, the lead for the Women, Sex, Gender, and Dementia program for the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration and aging. She is the Wilfred and Joyce Poslin's chair in women's brain health and aging. And oh, Dr. Einstein was also named one of 20 Canadian brain research stars by Brain Canada. Dr. Jillian Einstein joins us now in conversation. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. So what's it like to have a last name like Einstein? Well, I tell people a few things about that. One is that um, that and uh, uh, $2 won't buy me a cup of coffee. And um, the other one is on a bad hair day, I look like him. (laughs) Let's talk about that relationship. You are uh, connected to Albert Einstein. How are you related? Well, my grandfather on my father's side worked out with Albert Einstein that we are first cousins twice removed. So back in Germany, there were brothers, Einstein, um, Einstein's brother and uh, my grandfather's brother were related. Well, that, that takes a big brain to figure that one out, that's for sure. So Dr. Einstein, Jillian, if I may call you that, when were Please. you first interested in Albert Einstein's work and in his theories? Well, you know, I've, I've always grown up with the name of Einstein, obviously, and, and I felt a connection to Albert Einstein always, but I wasn't always interested in physics. And it really wasn't until I took a course as an undergraduate called Physics for Poets that I, I kind of fell in love with the theory of relativity. And actually, Einstein wrote a wonderful book with somebody named Infeld that explained the coordination between what's called classical mechanics in physics and the theory of relativity. And I just love that. But I've never had the mathematical skills to take physics any further than that. So what was it then? Where did your fascination with the brain come from? It actually came from my early interest in vision. So I've always been a very visually directed person. I love line and color. And actually, as an undergraduate, um, I majored in art history. I didn't even study science. And it wasn't until I was in my third year that I thought, I really want to understand how people see. I don't just want to describe what it is that they see. And so somebody actually told me that there was a field called neuroscience that would train me to understand how people see things. And that's how I got interested in the brain. And what have you learned about the brain, just in general? We'll we'll talk about gender a little bit later on in this interview, but just the brain in general. My, My question has always been, 
are people born more intelligent than others or more creative than others? And does it all come from the brain? Well, one of the things that I learned early on in my graduate career um, was that all of these different parts of the brain are interconnected and that um, even though this popular idea that there's a part of the brain for vision and a part of the brain for um, planning ahead, um, that all of them are connected to each other. It's, it's, it, it requires multiple regions acting simultaneously. And I think that sort of preparation for um, thinking about the aging brain, which is what I do now, and women's brain, women's brains, uh, that kind of preparation really helped me. And when you're thinking about, well, really anybody's brain, it's so important to actually think about the rest of the body. The brain doesn't just sit on top of your shoulders and act as an independent entity. It's connected to all kinds of body systems, including the immune system that we're thinking so much about these days, and the endocrine system, which is what we think about when we think about hormones. Um, and so that's actually what began to shape my thinking about women's brains as we age um, and as we learn and grow. And when you start thinking about that, you realize that experience is a tremendous influence on the brain. It's, it's, it's not just um, hardwired from birth, that it's very plastic, it's very changeable, and what actually changes that is our experience and learning. So does that mean that the brain continues to develop from birth and up to a certain point and then it stops developing and begins to deteriorate? Well, that's a, a great question and really applicable for somebody who studies aging and Alzheimer's disease. And there, for example, have been studies that suggest that as soon as the brain stops developing, if somebody is going to develop Alzheimer's disease, they really start developing it very, very early on. It just takes a long, long time for us to notice it. But in fact, I don't like to think of it as the brain deteriorating because in addition to what you would think of more like pruning your garden, it's more like what happens as we age. Your garden kind of gets pruned and specified. Um, um, we also, the brain changes with experience. So we can develop new circuits, even though we're pruning some, we can develop new ones with learning as we go along. And really that's what learning is. I, I always tell the students in my courses, I want your brain to be changed when you leave this course. I don't want your brain circuits to be the same as when you came in. So on the one hand, we're pruning as we age, but on the other hand, we're also developing new circuits and reinforcing old circuits in order to get better at what it is that we do. Your interest right now is in women's brain health and aging. So women's brain health, are hormones key when it comes to brain health and the differences between men and women? Well, it's one place to start looking, that's for sure. And of course, we know that uh, in animal models, um, hormones are incredibly important, uh, even in the early development of the brain. So even in, in, in the embryo, um, hormones uh, are beginning to shape the brain just like they shape the rest of the body. Um, and so it's n it wouldn't be a surprise to think 
that as we age, hormones are continuing to shape our brains. That said, it's really important to understand that estrogens are not just for females. Males make lots of them. And testosterone is not just for men. Females make a lot of that. And in fact, you can't, get, you can't synthesize estrogens without making testosterone. So we're all making both all the time. Um, but it's really important, I think, to consider the effect of, of estrogens in women's brain health, really even in midlife, um, at, for preserving brain health as we age. So I think about menstruation, childbirth, menopause, hysterectomies, all of the things that, that women can or do go through. How is that connected to women's brain health and aging? Well, it's interesting. There's some studies that suggest um, that in humans, as well as in rodent models, um, there's a certain number of children that you should have that will uh, maintain cognition. If you have too many, uh, it seems to have a negative effect on cognition. And if you don't have any, that also has a negative effect on cognition. But of course, all of these things are means and standard deviations. And so individuals can vary quite a bit. Um, I think menopause is also a really important actor in brain health. Um, Many, many people are studying what's called the menopausal transition now as one potential area important for um, answering the question of why more women than men have Alzheimer's disease. Um, But I am principally interested in what happens in midlife. So I'm interested in things that change hormonal balances in midlife, like removing women's ovaries or cancer treatments. Um, These things are all happening when women are in their uh, 30s, 20s, 30s, and 40s. And uh, they may actually have an effect on late life cognition that, that's important to understand. So we're in my lab studying women who've had their ovaries removed before they would ordinarily go into menopause when they're 30 years old um, and, and early 40s. And they're having their ovaries removed because actually they carry a gene that predisposes them to breast and ovarian cancer. So it's really important um, prophylactically or to protect against the cancer that they have their ovaries removed, but having their ovaries removed may lead to other effects, including brain effects. So with your vast research, dementia, Alzheimer's, big issues for this large aging population here in Canada, can it be detected in time for it to be stopped or reversed? I think um, it can be. I think it's really uh, becoming more and more important in the whole Alzheimer's disease research field to try to identify early signs of memory problems. I mean, and when I say early, uh, I mean when people are just reporting that they have memory problems, that's being called subjective cognitive uh, decline now. Um, And to think about lifestyle interventions like diet, exercise, in some cases maybe hormone replacement, that would really, and sleep, enhancing sleep, that would be really beneficial to women uh, and help preserve brain function later into life. Dr. Einstein, what are you doing to help keep your brain functioning, active, firm, 
and full of future use, if you will. What are you doing to keep your brain healthy as you age? Well, I'm, I'm working very, very hard. That's one, to understand women's brain health. It keeps me engaged with young people. Um, I get to engage with really smart colleagues. Um, I get to plan really interesting events and talk to people like you who want to know about the work. So that keeps my brain really engaged. I try to exercise at least three times a week, which I know isn't enough, but it's the best I can get out there. Um, I, I, I try to maintain a healthy diet, um, and um, I just engage with the world as best as I, I can and what I have time to do. Right now, I'm, I'm full out on trying to understand why more women than men have Alzheimer's disease. I'm, it's just a burning question for me, um, and also a burning question um, as to what happens to women's brains when their ovaries are removed, because I, I think we don't think enough and don't understand enough about the corollaries of all these treatments that women go through in midlife um, and how they're going to play out later in life. So those are the kinds of things that I do to keep my brain active um, and to try to keep it healthy. Well, thank goodness we have brains like yours in the queue to keep all of us healthy. What do you think Albert Einstein would say if he knew you today? Well, you know, I hope he would be very proud, but he was an extremely busy man, really engaged in his own dreams, uh, about the way the world works. And uh, I think he would be very polite and say, this is really important work. Um, uh, but I think he would be extremely engaged in his own area of physics, quite frankly. You are such a diplomat and such a pleasure to speak with Dr. Jillian Einstein. Thank you for joining us in conversation. It was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. When we come back, the pandemic blues. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line. Info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 1059 The Region. I need somebody. Not just Oh, the pandemic is hitting us hard, really hard. We are dreading the possibility of contracting COVID-19. We're terrified we might die from it. Many of us are isolated, unemployed, unhealthy, unhappy, and unsure of the future. Mental health issues are at an all-time high as emotional well-being hits all-time lows. Help is out there. We just need to know where to look and how to ask. Dr. Deanne Sims is a clinical health psychologist and the president and CEO of Thrive Space Health and Wellness. She joins us in conversation. Thank you, Dr. Sims, Deanne, for being with us. Thank you for having me. So I just listed a few things that people are going through right now. How do we know the difference between long-term mental illness and right now we call it the, the pandemic blues? Well, we know that People have been struggling now for quite some time with symptoms of stress, anxiety, and depression. And as the pandemic and the isolation orders wear on, 
so too does the toll on our mental and physical health and well-being. So I like to remind people that we're actually in uh, more of a, a chronic model where some of these symptoms that we were managing early on and coping through have really just started to wear on us and have, have worn us down over time. We know from some of our large population studies that people are struggling now even more than the early days of the pandemic. And to your point, stress, anxiety, and depression levels are, are inching higher and higher in our communities and in our families and friends. And how does it manifest itself? What does it look like? Well, we know that people are feeling certainly more irritable. People are struggling with sleep. People might notice that they have difficulty concentrating. There might be changes to weight. Some people might have gained weight. Others may have lost weight. And we know that people are feeling really blah, feeling really sluggish, and feeling really disconnected to people and communities around them. How do we get help? We're almost in this holding pattern. So many of us are isolated. We're at stay-at-home orders. We're not supposed to be going anywhere unless it's essential. We're not to be with other people. How do we find what we need inside us to go and get help? Well, we know that compared to the early days of the pandemic, more Ontarians are confident in their ability to find mental health and addiction supports. And we know that about 70% of people who do engage with formal supports find them helpful. But sometimes it can be difficult to navigate wait lists and and finding the right fit. Um, So it is encouraging that we have more remote delivered services or services that people can use over the web or over the phone. So things like Kids Help Phone, or Bounce Back Ontario, or other ICBT services. But in addition to some of the formal supports, a lot of what I'm encouraging people to do is to really try to find connection in this time of feeling really isolated and disconnected. So I'm trying to remind people in any small way possible to connect to themselves, to connect to friends and family members, and to connect to their community. Because we know that this sense of connection can help to protect us against or to decrease the impact of some of that isolation, some of that sadness, worry, and anxiety that is so prevalent for our communities right now. What are things that we can do to help ourselves? Well, here's something that I actually just, experienced last week. Um, I was working with a healthcare worker and she was feeling the crushing weight of helplessness. So she was really frustrated with her inability to help everyone in her community to administer vaccines, to to protect people from COVID. And she really felt uh, a lot of despair. And one small, meaningful thing that she did was, you know, she went out and got some chocolates, just some small chocolates, and delivered them to the daycare workers that are protecting her children and keeping herself and her family safe. 
And I was so inspired by this because I myself was really struggling with feeling helpless, feeling hopeless, and, and really frustrated. And so I used her example, and I put together just tiny little care packages that I delivered to the daycare workers who protect my son and daughter every day. So I just got some face masks, some tea, a couple of chocolates, and a heartfelt note where I actually thanked them for, for making choices in their life to help keep me and my family safe. And it was something that was small, but it was deeply meaningful. And it helped me to connect to important people in my life. And it really helped to take the edge off of some of the sadness that I was feeling. In other words, it's better to give than it is to receive. But Deanne, what if we're not able to connect with the outside world? How do we, say, as a household or living alone, what else can we do to get through this? Well, I try to point people towards doing the doable and controlling the controllable, especially in times where there's great uncertainty and there's um, a lot of things that might get in the way uh, for us living our lives in a uh, a normal way. And so that might mean finding ways to connect with yourself, like connecting with a purpose. Is there um, some way that you can contribute your skills and your time to an initiative that's meaningful? Is there some way that um, you can volunteer through an online service? Is there some way that you can make a small but meaningful donation to a community initiative? Is there some way that you can explore and support other actions that are underway Um, in the world around you in an online forum? And are there ways that you can continue to connect with some of the activities that keep you as healthy and balanced as possible? So that goes back to the core pieces of trying to eat regular balanced meals, trying to drink lots of water, trying to get good quality and quantity of sleep. The other thing that I remind people of is this is a long haul and so at any point when someone's trying to make, um, is trying to cope with something that's stressful or trying to make a change in their life, you need reminders and you need refreshes. And um, there are times where you're probably going to fall off track. If I had initiated a diet or a change to the way that I was eating a year ago, I would most certainly need reminders and help and new ideas over the course of a year to make sure that I was still making those differences in my life. And this is, this is true as well of the way that we're coping. The brain is this magnificent organ, and it is multifaceted, and it's taking quite a, a hit through this pandemic for so many reasons. What can we do to keep our brains fit and healthy through this? Well, certainly those pieces about healthful meals, rest, moving our bodies, and drinking lots of water, but we know that there are parts of our brain that are a little bit um, dulled because we're not having in-person, face-to-face social interactions. And so some of the data and the science that's coming out is helping us to understand that 
even though we're connecting with people through video or through phone, if we're able to have communications that make us feel vulnerable and that allow us to be creative, we can still wake up those parts of our brain that are feeling particularly sluggish. So if you have a good friend or uh, an online game where you're able to chat and engage and create with people, certainly it's not the same as doing some of these things in person, but making sure that you're having those creative and vulnerable social contacts will help to excite and awaken these parts of our brain that have really been asleep or, or under, underactivated over the past year. People look to you for help. Who helps you, Deanne? Uh, that would be my family and my dog, actually. Um, my dog helps to remind me that I am an animal <laughs> who needs to get outside, move around, drink and eat at regular intervals. And my husband and my children are my joy. And spending this time together with them, although unexpected and sometimes deeply frustrating <laughs> for all of us, has also been really rewarding because it has allowed me to pay attention to what matters most and to really work to connect and have meaningful interactions with these very valued people in my life. These mental health challenges that we are all struggling with at certain degrees, at certain levels, will there be long-term damage to our emotional well-being as a result of this long-haul pandemic? I mean, I think that we're still uh, being mindful of the data that's coming in and, and some of the, the ways in which psychologists and other scientists are measuring and um, making sense of people's reactions to this worldwide event, I think that as humans and as societies, we traditionally show a lot of resilience and um, a strong ability to adapt to different, very difficult scenarios. And I think this is another one of those times where, sure, it might take some time, it might take different levels of help. Um, for different members of our communities, but I'm optimistic that this is something that we will most certainly make it through um, and will be changed, will be different, um, and, and that's okay because this is the reality of the world that we're living in today. So there is help and there is hope. Dr. Deanne Sims, clinical health psychologist and the president and CEO of Thrive Space Health and Wellness, thank you for joining us in conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Deanne Sims, small gestures, big results. Dr. Jillian Einstein, Albert would be proud. Bye for now. Follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.